Well, good afternoon, everyone. According to my watch, it's 3.15. So I want to start on time so that we can end on time. Does that sound good? All right. Now, just a couple of points of introduction before we get into the message. First of all, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Norman McNulty, and I'm currently living in Trinidad, serving as a missionary for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, working as a neurologist at the Adventist Hospital there. So I, my wife and I have been there for about 10 months, and we've been having a very good time. Prior to that, we were in Loma Linda for a number of years and, and have been to many GYC. So it's great to be with you here. Now, one, one other thing I wanted to mention, and you know, how many of you were here for Dr. Hosel's testimony at the very end of the last meeting? So many of you were here. That was, that was a powerful story at the very end there. And you know, one of the things that um, resonated with me, and he didn't mention this part of his story as well, is that his father ended up passing away a few years after he told that story. And my father has passed away as well. And so he and I share that in common, that we are looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And one of the books that helps us as a people to be reminded of our message that will prepare us for the second coming is found in the book of Daniel. So I was talking to him last night about how what a privilege it is for us to be sharing a message from the book of Daniel this, this week here at GYC. And so... It's a privilege to be here with you and to share the seminar with Dr. Hosel, and I know you were blessed by what you've heard so far. Why don't we have a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into our message for today. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here to GYC. We thank you for the opportunity we have of studying from your word. And I pray as we get into our message for this afternoon that we would learn things that would prepare us for your soon coming. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> you know, I really believe that what is happening here this week in Baltimore is a sign of the times, amen? amen. I am so excited to see such an interest in genuine Adventism at this time of Earth's history. And I really do believe that God is raising up young people to be ready for the second coming of Christ. And when we study our prophetic messages in Daniel and Revelation, we can clearly see just how soon Jesus could be coming. And what we are going to look at through the remaining three presentations of this seminar, we are going to look at our prophetic identity, how that identity drives our mission, and where we are prophetically in time to just how near Jesus could be coming and what kind of message we should be giving to our people. You know, it is way too late in Earth's history to be going to other churches to try to figure out how they are growing their churches so that we can boost our numbers in churches. 
What we need to be looking for at this time in earth's history, we need to be getting back to our prophetic messages which will help us to understand our identity and mission for this hour of earth's history. And when I look at Adventism today, I find there to be a serious lack of understanding among our young people about what our prophetic identity is and what our mission should be as a church. You know, I went, I've gone through the school system, and I praise God for the good things that I gained out of my Adventist education, but I went from grade one all the way through the end of fellowship training past residency, all the way through the Adventist system. And one of the things that I often find when talking to fellow colleagues or young people is a serious lack of understanding of our prophetic messages. And in fact, one such example, I was talking to a high school student and they got stuck naming the kingdoms of Daniel 2 after the head of gold. And another colleague of mine almost laughed as he said, yeah, my son, about the only thing he knows from Daniel and Revelation is that there's going to be a national Sunday law someday. You know, we as, as a people, as young people, we should know way more than that. And realize, an understanding of beasts and horns do not save us, amen? amen? But God put that information in the Bible for a reason. And that information is there to help us understand what time we are living in Earth's history. You know, as I look at my classmates from my high school years, I was thinking about among the 30 people that graduated with me from my high school class, I would be surprised if 10 were still Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, that's not a good number. And it's not necessarily the fault of the school that I went to, but the interest of the, of the kids that were with me was not on heavenly things. It was on earthly things. And in fact, I still remember the school principal would talk about how he believed Jesus was coming soon and how some of my classmates would mock him. And that should not be happening with us as a people. And I believe that if we would get our young people back to our prophetic messages, we would see a change in interest level in spiritual things. Now, how many of you heard, have heard questions such as, well, why does 1844 really matter? We just need Jesus. Or I'm tired of studying about beasts and horns. We just need Jesus. And I've heard those comments, and some of them have been from higher-up church leaders who have said such statements. But when you get back to the study of Daniel and Revelation, and we're going to be studying Daniel as we have been thus far, you find some very crucial and fascinating things for where we are in Earth's history at this time. And where in the Bible, obviously, that we find our prophetic identity and mission delineated are in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Now, I want to show you what Ellen White has to say about the importance of studying the book of Daniel as we get into our message. Testimonies to Ministers, page 112. Daniel and Revelation must be studied as well as the other prophecies of the Old and New Testament. So should we be studying the book of Daniel? Absolutely. Now notice this. There is need of a much closer study of the Word of God. 
especially should Daniel and the Revelation have attention as never before in the history of our work. Read the book of Daniel, call up point by point the history of the kingdoms there represented. The light that Daniel received from God was given for when? Especially for these last days. So should our young people be studying Daniel and Revelation? Absolutely. It's not just something that should be an optional course in college or high school. As one of the young people I talked to who went through academy, they had one quiz on the book of Daniel in their Bible classes for four years. Not even one test. One quiz. And then we wonder why our young people have no understanding of our identity and mission. Daniel and Revelation are given especially for these last days. Continuing on, page 114, and there's, by the way, an entire chapter in Testimonies to Ministers that I would recommend reading about Daniel and Revelation. Notice this, when the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. Now, do Seventh-day Adventists need to have an entirely different religious experience? You better believe it. We are the Laodicean church. We are lukewarm, and Christ describes our condition as nauseating to him. So if you, one of the ways to get a different religious experience is to study the books of Daniel and Revelation. And so I'm glad to see those of you who are here. We need to have an entirely different religious experience. And as we study, we will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with a character that all must develop in order to realize the blessedness, which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. Testimonies to Ministers 115. Will our brethren bear in mind that we are living amid the perils of the last days? Do you believe that? Do you believe we are living in the, amidst the perils of the last days? She says, read Revelation in connection with Daniel. Then she says, teach these things. So what we are going to be doing and have been doing is to teach the things found in the book of Daniel that will help us to have an entirely different religious experience, that will help us to be prepared for Jesus to come. And then she closes, I have two more quotes. This is a very fascinating statement. Testimonies to Ministers, page 116. Those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you know, there's a lot of things that people are teaching in our churches that are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. We need to get back to truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And notice what she says. When we study these books and bring forth truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, notice what happens. It says, they will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. Would you like to be part of a movement inspired by the Holy Spirit that starts into action forces that cannot be repressed? I believe that's what God is raising the GYC movement up for. And if he's going to use the GYC movement to start into 
action forces that cannot be repressed. We are going to need to dig deeper into the books of Daniel and Revelation. And as we do, we are going to gain a clearer picture of where we are in time prophetically, of who we are as a people prophetically, and what our mission should be as a church. And so we won't be confused by all of this stuff that's going on around us in our churches. And we will be able to give in clarity the three angels' messages. And when she says they will start into action forces that cannot be repressed, this will culminate with a loud cry of Revelation 18. And finally, she says, study Revelation in connection with Daniel, for history will be repeated. We, with all our religious advantages, ought to know far more today than we do know. Do you believe that? You know, think about how much time you waste every day that you could be studying the Bible and gaining an understanding of the message for our time. And I have to ask myself this question. Where, where could I be utilizing my time better? Because we ought to know far more than we do. Seventh-day Adventists used to be known as the people of the book. And we should know with clear understanding what our message is in the book of Daniel and what our message is in the book of Revelation. These books are for our time. So that is what we are going to set out to do in the remainder of, of today. Now, I'm going to do a brief overview of the first six chapters, which Dr. Hosel has already covered many of the key points. <clears throat> When you look at the book of Daniel, and Dr. Hosel talked about this, what does the name Daniel mean? God is my judge. So what do you think the book of Daniel is about? It's a book about judgment. And does the judgment have any relevance for us at this time of verse history? Absolutely. So the book of Daniel is a book about judgment. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Now, when you look at the first six chapters of Daniel, which Dr. Hosel has covered, these first six chapters give living demonstrations through the lives of Daniel and his three friends of how to live in the judgment hour. Daniel... Chapter 1, verse 8, as Dr. Hosel's talked about. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And then Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't bow down to the image, and they tell Nebuchadnezzar, you know, our God can deliver us, but even if he's, he doesn't, we will not bow down to your image. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is told you can only worship the king for 30 days. Now, what do we learn from these stories and the faithfulness of Daniel and his three friends? What we see is Daniel and his three friends were not asking, is this a salvational issue? Will I lose my salvation if I drink the king's wine and eat the portion of his meat. You know, God is a gracious, merciful God, and he is, amen? But he is so gracious and so merciful, if I compromise this one time, you know, I can pray and ask for forgiveness later, and then it will all be okay. Because 
I'll lose my witness if I don't go along with the crowd, and if I lose my witness, then I won't be able to, use, be able to be used by God here in Babylon. You know, couldn't Daniel have asked that question and rationalized in such a way? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could have said, you know, we don't really believe in this image. We're just going to bow down, but we'll be praying to God and asking him to forgive us as we're bowing down. And, you know, in Daniel 6, Daniel could have hidden in the closet. But, you know, they were not asking, is this a salvational issue? They, they were not asking, will this affect my assurance of salvation? They were asking, how will God's name best be glorified in this situation? And in each setting, they said, we will be faithful. And you know, that is the kind of people that God is looking for in the judgment hour. Because Revelation 14 says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Do you think that God was glorified by Daniel and his three friends in each of those stories? Absolutely. God was glorified through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in each of those stories. Because they were not looking at what's the minimum I can do to get by and still get to heaven. They were saying, God is so gracious and so merciful that I'm going to live my life in such a way that will bring honor and glory to him, even in a heathen nation of Babylon. And you realize we are facing spiritual Babylon at this time in the hour of God's judgment. And God is looking for modern day Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be faithful no matter what. To not turn back, but to move forward by faith. And so when we look at those stories, we see illustrations of how we as God's people can live in the judgment hour. And it lays the foundation for us as we then get into the prophetic chapters of Daniel 7 and 8 that we're going to look at this afternoon of how we can live in the judgment hour. And of course... Daniel being a book about judgment, as we mentioned, especially has relevance for us today because we are the Laodicean church. And what does Laodicea mean? Laodicea means a judged people. So we are a people of the judgment hour, and Daniel is a message about judgment. So this book is especially relevant for our study. Now, I'm going to go through a brief outline of Daniel 7 and 8. And I think we know these things of how these kingdoms line up. What I want to focus in on, and this is basically where we're headed with this presentation, is when you look at Daniel 7 and 8, the judgment and the sanctuary, cleansing of the sanctuary, line up with each other at the end of the sequence of kingdoms, and both events began in 1844, and... Therefore, the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary are two descriptions of similar concepts, or of the same thing. And they both begin in 1844. So the title of the presentation is, Why Does 1844 Matter? Well, at the very outset, I'll just mention, obviously, because 1844 is when the judgment began and when the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven began. We're going to get to that as we go through these passages. Now, what we are going to do now, we are going to take a brief look at Daniel chapter 7. Now, how many of you here 
feel like you could give a Bible study to someone not of our faith on Daniel chapter 7 in a way that they would be able to understand it clearly? Okay, many of you are raising your hands. How many of you feel a little bit, you know, I know some of the, the points, but I'm not sure if I could, could get the punchline at the end of the chapter. How many of you kind of feel that way? And, and about the same number. And how many of you have never studied Daniel 7 at all? Okay, some of you. So this is the first chapter where Daniel receives the prophetic vision for himself. Daniel chapter 2, the image with a head of gold, that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel 7 is Daniel's vision that God gives to him. And when you look at Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and I hope you brought your Bibles because we are going to go through the verses here in Daniel chapter 7. When you look at Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1, for historical context, this vision occurs in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So this actually occurs in history after Daniel 5 and Daniel chapter 6, just for historical context. And Daniel says that he has a vision in verse 2, and notice... He says that in verse 3, he saw four great beasts come up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now, what are these four beasts? Can you show me from the Bible what these four beasts are? Well, conveniently, the answer is found in the very same chapter. Verse 17 of the same chapter the Bible says these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. So now we're told these are four kings. But in verse 23, the Bible says the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So I think this is basic. Most of us understand this. These four beasts are four kingdoms, and kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably here. And they come up out of the sea. Revelation 17, 15 tells us that the sea represents a populated area. So these are four kingdoms that come up out of populated areas of the earth. And verses 4 through 8 show us what these beasts were. And, and it helps us to understand what kingdoms are being represented. Verse 4, you have the lion with eagle's wings. What's this kingdom? This is the kingdom of Babylon. And if you were here for Dr. Hazel's seminar, he had pictures of the gate of Ishtar, which had a lion with eagle's wings. So those who were living at this time would know that a lion with eagle's wings was symbolic of the kingdom of Babylon. Then you have a second beast in verse 5. It's a bear raised up on its side. And do you know why it was raised up on its side? It represents the division of Medo-Persia and how one division of the kingdom would be stronger than the other. And what were the three ribs in its mouth representative of? Those were the three kingdoms that Medo-Persia conquered in its rise to power. And what were the three kingdoms? Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. So the Bible is very precise as it describes prophetic history. And this is all before it happened. Then you have the leopard, which has four wings of a fowl, and this is verse 6, and it had four heads. Do you know what the four heads represent? These are the four divisions of the empire of Greece, and we're going to see more about that, especially as we get into Daniel chapter 11 tomorrow morning. And then in verse 7, 
we have this dreadful, terrible beast that has iron teeth. Now, does that help us to understand what beast is represented here? Or what kingdom? Well, in Daniel chapter 2, the fourth kingdom had legs of what? Legs of iron. Here you have a dreadful, terrible beast with iron teeth. So we're talking about the same power here. This is the fourth kingdom. This is the kingdom of Rome. And in verse 7, we see that this beast has ten horns. What are the ten horns of this beast? Verse 24 tells us that the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. These are the ten kingdoms of Europe that came up out of the Western Roman Empire. And then in verse 8, this, this is where we see the little horn. And hopefully this is mostly review for most of you. And the little horn comes up. Where does this little horn come up? Verse 8 says it comes up among the the horns, or, or the ten horns. And where were the ten horns located? Western Europe. So where would the little horn geographically have to be coming from? It would have to be somewhere in Western Europe. So when you want to understand prophetically where would the little horn be coming from, it has to be coming from Western Europe where it comes up among the ten horns of Europe. And it plucks up three horns by the roots. That's the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Heruli, historically. And this is, at the end of verse 8, it says, Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, have, have you heard of this power having a mouth speaking great things anywhere else in the Bible? It's actually found three more times in Daniel chapter 7, and as Dr. Hosel showed in his previous seminar, if something is mentioned four times, that means from a biblical perspective it is of utmost importance. We see the great horn, words of the little horn in verse 8, in verse 11, in verse 20, and in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 7. So it comes up repeatedly. And we're going to talk about that further. You also find the great words of this power described in Revelation chapter 13, describing the very same thing. Now, what is the very next thing? We've seen the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the dreadful, terrible beast, followed by the little horn. What is the very next thing that we see in Scripture? We see in verses 9 and 10 the beginning of the judgment in heaven. So here's the sequence. Four beasts followed by judgment. Verses 9 and 10, follow along in, in your Bibles. It says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. This is one of the great moments in prophetic history. The judgment begins in heaven. This is a big deal prophetically. We've gone from the lion to the bear to the leopard to the dreadful beast to the little horn, and finally the judgment begins in heaven. Now, 
What's the very next thing that's mentioned after the judgment in verses 9 and 10? Verse 11 says, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the little horn spake. Now, what was mentioned just prior to the beginning of the judgment at the end of verse 8? You see the little horn who has the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So get this. You have the judgment, which is one of the pinnacle moments in prophetic history of verses 9 and 10 of Daniel chapter 7. And surrounding the judgment are the great words of the little horn. Do you think that the little horn has anything to do with the judgment? Absolutely. And this is what we're going to look at. And I'm going to just give you some highlights here as we go on now. So the vision concludes initially in verse 14, where the Son of Man comes to the Father in the clouds of heaven at the beginning of the judgment, verses 13 and 14. Verse 15 says, Daniel was grieved... Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. He wants to know, what's this vision about? You know, if you received a vision and it troubled you, and you didn't really understand what it was all about, wouldn't you want to know more about what this vision was really all about? So that's what happens here. And Daniel, in verse 16, comes to a heavenly being and says, hey, can you tell me what this vision is all about? And so notice what this heavenly being tells him in verse 17 and verse 18. He says, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, do you think that answer satisfied Daniel? Obviously, it did not, because in verse 19, he wants to know more about something. And what, he's, what does he want to know more about? He wants to know the truth of the fourth beast. And now he gives a description of what he wants to know about from verse 19 through verse 22. So Daniel summarizes what he wants to know more about. I want to know more about this fourth beast, which was dreadful and terrible. It has the ten horns. Verse 20, it has the mouth that speaks very great things. And in verse 21, notice this. This is a new piece of information. Verse 21, he says, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So here, Daniel introduces some new information. This is what he's seen, and he sees that this little horn makes war against the saints. And he wants to know more about this because he's grieved, he's troubled. And then he says, yes, the Ancient of Days comes, judgment is given, the saints possess the kingdom. And notice... The heavenly beings answer, verses 23 through 27. He repeats with greater detail what this vision is about. Okay, Daniel, yes, I told you there were four beasts, which are four kingdoms. But specifically, since you want to know, and you know, God will not necessarily give us information unless we dig deeper and study more. So the heavenly being tells Daniel, okay, since you want to know more about this fourth beast, I'll tell you. Yes, it's diverse from all kingdoms. Yes, ten horns come out of this kingdom. Three of them will be subdued by this little horn. And verse 25 is the key verse. 
This little horn shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time, but the judgment shall sit. Can you see immediately why it is such a good thing for the judgment to take place? You know, there are Seventh-day Adventists that say, oh, the judgment is such a scary thing. I wish there wasn't an investigative judgment in heaven. But when you study Daniel chapter 7, when we study it, we can say, praise God, there is a judgment in heaven because there was a little horn power that made war with the saints for 1,260 years. And at the end of that persecution, the Father said, okay, enough is enough. It's time for the judgment to sit. So don't let people scoff at the idea of a judgment. Notice also one of the key things that's introduced in verse 25. The element of the great words of the little horn is that it thinks to change times and laws. Now, when we look at things prophetically, we understand, okay, yes, the lion was Babylon, the bear was Medo-Persia, the leopard was Greece, the dreadful, terrible beast was pagan Rome. The little horn, because it comes up from Western Europe, and it was the power that disposed of the Ostrogoths, the Heruli, and the Vandals, it had to be none other than papal Rome. And Daniel 7.25 says, this power ruled for 1,000 260 years. And indeed, Papal Rome ruled during that length of time. In 533, Justinian made a, a, a decree that made the Bishop of Rome the head of all the churches. So here, here you have a political ruler making the, the bishop of Rome the head of all the churches. So you ask, well, how come Seventh-day Adventists then teach that the 1260 years begin in 538? Isn't that a good question? If the decree was 533, why did the prophecy begin in 538? The answer is because it took till 538, the Ostrogoths, which were the last of the three to be uprooted by Papal Rome, 538, they were driven out of the city of Rome by the general Belisarius, and that began the 1,260 years of papal supremacy and persecution. At the end of the 1,260 years, right on time, Berthier, Napoleon's general, takes Pius VI the captive, and that picture in the middle is from the Vatican Museum in Rome depicting this very scene. And so we see prophecy fulfilled. And in Daniel 7, we see that the kingdoms of this earth take us down all the way to the end of the 1260 years in 1798. And sometime after that, the judgment would begin in heaven. This is where Daniel chapter 8 helps us to understand further the importance of the judgment and the concept of 1844. Now in Daniel chapter 8, when we looked at the overview slide, we saw that Babylon was missing from the sequence of kingdoms. And I'm just going to do a brief rundown again of the kingdoms here. Daniel chapter 8, the vision occurs two years after the vision of Daniel chapter 7. 
It occurs by the river Uli. And in verses 3 and 4, Daniel sees a ram. And verse 20 tells us this ram represents Medo-Persia. So clearly the first kingdom in Daniel 8 is Medo-Persia. Babylon is missing. We're going to talk about why Babylon is missing in Daniel chapter 8. Then in verses 5 through 8, we see a he-goat. And verse 21 of Daniel chapter 8 tells us that this goat is the kingdom of Greece. So there's no room for misunderstanding about what these kingdoms represent in Daniel chapter 8. And this is where I want to focus in on some of the key elements of the link between Daniel 7 and chapter 8. First of all, Daniel chapter 8 is a shift of emphasis in the book of Daniel from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7 are written in Aramaic or the Chaldean language. But in Daniel chapter 8, it switches back to the Hebrew language because Daniel chapter 8 is shifting back to a focus more that relates to God's people. And if you look at the beasts that are used to describe the kingdoms, the ram and the he-goat, these were the animals that were used in the sanctuary service. So we are shifting from the emphasis on the pagan kingdoms of this world to that which pertains to God's people. And Daniel has this vision where he sees the ram in verses 3 and 4, the hego in verses 5 through 7, and then he sees a little horn that comes out from one of the four winds of heaven in verse 9. We understand that the little horn initially represents Rome in its pagan phase, and then it transitions to the papal phase, and I don't have time to get into that part of Daniel 8 at this point. But it's the same sequence, pagan then papal Rome. Verse 13 is where I want to focus in on now. Because Daniel sees this vision, he sees these kingdoms, and then two heavenly beings show up in verse 13, and they start talking to each other. And notice what it says, verse 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now here's the first thing that I want to point out to you. In Daniel chapter 7, you have the kingdoms of this earth followed by the judgment. And in Daniel chapter 7, you have for the first time the mentioning of the 1,260-year prophecy that occurs at the end of the reign of papal Rome. And that takes us to 1798. In Daniel chapter 8, this, the kingdoms of this world bring us down to the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary. And we are going to look at the timing of this prophecy very shortly here. But what I want to show you is there is a time prophecy in Daniel 8 that will help us to understand when the sanctuary in heaven began to be cleansed, which helps us to understand when the judgment also began in heaven. Now, here is the key point that I want to bring out from verse 13. The question is, how long the vision? And in the original, how long actually translates until when the vision 
concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation? And the answer is unto 2,300 days. Now, I think as Seventh-day Adventists, we could say, oh yes, we know that 2,300 days ended in 1844. But what I want to show you is that the year-day principle is inherent within this passage because here is what is being brought out. In verse 13, the question is asking, when is the vision going to end? Until when the vision? And the answer is, unto 2,300 days. Now, what is in this vision? Well, we see, beginning in verse 3, a ram, then a he-goat, then a little horn, in two phases. And so, what the two heavenly beings are trying to get Daniel to understand is this vision in its entirety will come to its end after 2,300 days and the beginning point will begin sometime at the first element of this vision. And the first element was the ram of Medo-Persia and incidentally that is the kingdom in which the 2,300 day prophecy began, right? So that is why Babylon is missing from the vision of Daniel chapter 8 because this occurs in the third year of the kingdom of Babylon, but Babylon is no longer relevant to this vision. When you look at this word vision, and this is getting slightly theological, but I think it's good for us to dig a little bit deeper into scripture, there's actually two different words for vision in Daniel chapter 8. In verses 1, 2, 13, 15, 17, and the last half of verse 26, it's the Hebrew word hazon, which describes what Daniel sees. But then in verse 16, 20, the first half of 26, and verse 27, the word for vision, meray, actually means appearance which refers to the appearance of the heavenly beings in verses 13 and 14, because in verses 13 and 14, Daniel only hears the heavenly beings. He doesn't see them. And so verse 13, when they say how long the vision, it's what Daniel has seen from verses 3 through verse 12, and it takes us from Medo-Persia all the way to the end of the Papal Roman Empire sometime after 1798. So if you want to prove that the year-day principle is biblical, do a Bible study on Daniel chapter 8 to show that the 2,300 days cannot be literal days because the kingdom of Medo-Persia alone lasted from 539 BC to 331, 208 years. So there's no way that it was 2,300 literal days. Does that make sense? Okay. When you continue on through Daniel chapter 8, you see in verse 16 that God wants Daniel to understand this. In verse 16 it says, at the last part of the verse, it says, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And the word for vision here refers to the appearance of the heavenly beings describing the 2300-day prophecy. And then in verse 17, Gabriel comes and tells Daniel last half, understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. And the word for vision here switches back to Hazan, which describes what Daniel saw in its entirety, all of the kingdoms of this world. And so what Daniel is being told by Gabriel is that the vision of the 2,300 days is for the time of the end. Now, when did the time of the end begin? 
showing from your we, we can show from our Bibles very clearly in the same book, Daniel chapter 11, verses 33 and 35. We see the persecution of the saints in Daniel 11:33. We see that the persecution occurs till the time of the end, and we've already seen from Daniel 7:25 that the saints were persecuted for a time, times, and the dividing of time, which is 1,260 years. So the time of the end begins when the persecution of the saints finishes, which occurs at the end of the 1,260 years, which is 1798. So you know what that means? That means that the vision of the 2300 days is especially for those people living after 1798. Is that relevant to us? You better believe it. We are living well after 1798 now. And then at the end of Daniel chapter 8, it talks about how God tells Daniel to shut up and seal the words for the vision is for many days. Now, how do we know the starting point for the 2300-day prophecy? This is kind of a busy slide, so I'm just going to cut to the main point. Daniel chapter 9, verse 23. Gabriel, he's shown up to Daniel after Daniel has prayed for understanding of this vision. And notice verse 23. Gabriel says, At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. And the word for vision here is again the Hebrew word marae, which specifically refers to the appearance of the heavenly beings discussing the 2300-day prophecy. And this is the only other, or, well, the, the word for marae first shows up in Daniel chapter 8 and then you see it again for the first time in Daniel chapter 9 so clearly Gabriel wants Daniel to understand the vision of the 2300 days and the very first thing he tells him is 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and the word determined comes from the Hebrew word katak which means to cut off so the 2300 days are the overriding time prophecy, but the 70 weeks or 490 years are cut off from that time, and it began, verse 25 tells us it's with a decree, Daniel 9, 25, the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. There were three decrees in the book of Ezra. Cyrus, then Darius Estaphus, and finally Artaxerxes degree in four, de, decree in 457. Each of them built upon each other, but it was Artaxerxes degree decree that set this prophecy in motion and if you want a good explanation for that read the command or the 70 weeks in the command to restore and build Jerusalem by J and Andrews one of our pioneers so 457 BC is the beginning of this prophecy that takes us to 1844 the beginning of the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary so the question is okay what's the big deal now have you ever wondered why did God allow Papal Rome to rule for 1,260 years? I mean, if you read the history books of that era, I mean, it was absolutely awful. I mean, I've read portions of, of Wiley's history of Protestantism. You can read Daubigny's history of the Reformation. The way Papal Rome treated true Christians was completely despicable. If you didn't agree with the Pope, you're, you're dead. You're out. 
And that lasted for 1,260 years. And you have to ask yourself the question, well, Jesus died on the cross in 31 AD, and why would he allow time to go on so much longer past the cross? Why did we need 1,260 years of papal persecution of God's saints? Didn't Jesus answer all of the key questions on the cross? Why didn't we just go home? Why did God allow such terrible sin and suffering to take place? Have you ever wondered that? Or am I the only one that's asked that question? I see a few hands. Why? And why would it take 2,300 years to get to the beginning of the cleansing of the sanctuary? This is where I believe that by going to the book of Revelation and tying in some key elements, this helps us to understand some of the answers to these questions. Well, first of all, We've seen that the 1,260-year prophecy is first given in Daniel chapter 7. Do you know where it first shows up in the book of Revelation? It's Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, and then again in verse 3. What's Revelation 11 talking about? If you go through Revelation chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11 is describing the French Revolution. And here you have, in the context of the French Revolution, verse 2, you have the 1,260 years. These are the years of papal supremacy. Again, the two witnesses of the Old and New Testament, they prophesy in sackcloth and ashes for 1,260 years. And then we see the prophecy of the three and a half years of the French Revolution in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 11. And again, in Revelation 11, 9 and verse 11. So at the end of the 1,260 years, right at the very end of that time period, the French Revolution took place. Now what was the French Revolution all about? The French Revolution demonstrated what happens when Satan is allowed to rule on this earth. And if you look at Revelation chapter 13, it says the dragon or Satan gave his power, seat, and authority to the beast, which is papal Rome. And papal Rome, with its power and authority from Satan, ruled for 1,260 years. And it was in the country of France especially that the principles of the papacy had preeminence. And notice what Ellen White says, Great Controversy 265-266. The war against the Bible carried forward for so many centuries in France culminated in the scenes of the revolution. That terrible outbreaking was but the legitimate result of Rome's suppression of the scriptures. It presented the most striking illustration which the world has ever witnessed of the working out of the papal policy, an illustration of the results to which for more than a thousand years the teaching of the Roman church had been tending. So here's the key point. You have the sequence of kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and then papal Rome. And in papal Rome, the dragon gives his power, seat, and authority to this power. And they work out the principles of Satan's government for 1,260 years. They suppress the scriptures. They're clothed in sackcloth and ashes. They persecute the saints. They have a mouth speaking great things against the Most High. And at the end of the 1,260 years, the result of the picture that papal Rome painted of God was to cause France to say, if this is what God is, we don't believe in him. 
and they became atheists. And so you have the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit describing the rise of atheism out of France in, at the end of the 1260-year prophecy. And now God can look to the onlooking universe and he can say, hey, do you have any questions about what it would be like if Satan had been allowed to rule my kingdom? Just look at the 1,260 years of papal Rome. And look how it culminated with the French Revolution. If you want to know what heaven would have become like if Satan had become in charge, this is what heaven would have become like. The French Revolution. Complete anarchy. A completely godless society. Satan has proven himself after 1,260 years. And then he can look to the onlooking universe and he can say, do you have any questions about why I should begin judging? And the universe can say, Amen, God, you are vindicated to begin a judgment because Satan has proven himself through the principles developed through papal Rome. And you know, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 11 helps us to understand Daniel 7 a little bit better. But what about... Daniel chapter 8 and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Because if you look at Revelation 10 and Revelation 11, they are an interlude between the 6th and the 7th trumpets, and I don't have time to say much about the trumpets other than to say, when you look at Revelation 11, 15 through 19, the 7th trumpet begins sounding, and in verse 19, the most holy place is opened in heaven. That's October 22, 1844. So Revelation, and the 6th trumpet ends at the end of Revelation so Revelation 10 and Revelation 11 are in between the end of the 6th trumpet and the beginning of the 7th trumpet in 1844. Revelation 11 shows us that after 1,260 years, God was vindicated to begin a judgment because of the principles that have been developed through papal Rome here on this earth. But what does the cleansing of the sanctuary in the 2300 days have to do with anything? And does Revelation answer that question? And the answer is yes. And the answer is found in Revelation chapter 10, describing the rise of the second advent movement where Jesus is the mighty angel who comes down from heaven and he has a little book in his hand that is opened. Do you know what that book is? That's the book of Daniel that was unsealed, specifically the portion of Daniel that had been sealed, which Daniel 8 shows us, was the 2300-day prophecy. So Jesus comes down from heaven at the beginning of the time of the end, and he announces that the 2300-day prophecy is opened for our understanding. And when we study Revelation chapter 10, we see that it is through the understanding of the 2300-day prophecy that God raised up his second advent movement. And the question is, what is the purpose for the second advent movement being raised up around the time of the end? First of all, Revelation chapter 10 verse 6 tells us that there would be no more prophetic time based on the 2300-day prophecy. So don't go to teachers who are telling you that the 1260, 1290, and 1335 can be reapplied into the future. I don't care how prominent the name they are, it's wrong. Secondly, Revelation chapter 10 
verse 7, describing the rise of the second advent movement, says, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, that's the seventh trumpet, when, he'll, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So the seventh trumpet begins sounding on October 22, 1844, according to Revelation 11, 15 to 19. And during the sounding of the second, seventh trumpet, which began in 1844, the mystery of God would be finished through the second advent movement that God raised up. Are you part of the second advent movement? Amen. Do you think God wants to finish the mystery of God in your lives? Amen. And what is this mystery of God that Christ wants to finish? Colossians 1.27 teaches us that the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God wants to finish the work of Christ in the lives of his people during the sounding of the seventh trumpet that began in 1844. And before I get to that quote, let me just say this. <clears throat> Daniel 7 shows that the judgment occurs after 1,260 years and the great words of the little horn. So there was the need for the judgment. And Revelation 11 shows us that at the end of the 1,260 years, the French Revolution took place. And so God could clearly look to the onlooking universe and say, it is time to begin the judgment. When we get to Revelation chapter 10, God looks to the onlooking universe and he says, okay, now it's my turn. Satan had his 1,260 years to show what the principles of his government would be like if he were allowed to take over heaven. Let me show the universe what I can do through raising up my second advent movement, which the 2,300-day prophecy points to. And this 2,300-day prophecy, which takes us to 1844, shows us that in the second advent movement, the mystery of God, which is Christ, Christ in you will be fulfilled through the lives of God's people. So Satan demonstrates the principles of his government through the papacy. God is going to demonstrate the principles of his government through the second advent movement. Do you want to be part of that work? Notice how Ellen White then connects the concept of the mystery of God to the cleansing of the sanctuary. Review and Herald, April 21, 1891. The latter reign is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. Are we ready to take part of the, in the glorious work of the third angel? Are we? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? And some of you may be struggling with sin here today. And God is calling you to a higher experience. And notice what she says. If so, let us cleanse the soul temple. This is cleansing of sanctuary language, which began in 1844. She says, let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. May God help us to die to self that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. Now notice what Ellen White does here. She connects the cleansing of the sanctuary to the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in the second advent movement, God is looking for people who will have their soul temples cleansed so that Christ can be formed within. And notice 
the highlighted portion of this quote from Maranatha, page 249. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. So the cleansing of the sanctuary began in heaven in 1844, and Ellen White is telling us that our lives must be cleansed in harmony with Christ's cleansing work in heaven. The sanctuary is not going to be cleansed if God's people continue to live in sin. God is looking for people whose lives will be cleansed by allowing Christ to come into our hearts. And again, the similar concept, manuscript H, October 20, 1888. Now Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary. And what is he doing? Making atonement for us. Cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people. And by the way, the atonement was not finished at the cross. It began and it will be finished in the sanctuary. Then we must enter by faith into the sanctuary with him. We must commence the work in the sanctuary of our souls. We are to cleanse ourselves from all defilement. Amen? So the question is, why are we still here? Christ began a work of cleansing in the sanctuary in heaven in 1844. And Ellen White says that there must be a cleansing of the soul temple in our lives here on this earth to correlate with Christ's cleansing work in heaven. Well, notice the famous quote, Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people then he will come to claim them as his own amen it is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain so why does 1844 matter 1844 matters because that is when the judgment began in heaven. And Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 11 shows us that there needed to be a judgment because of the persecution of Rome against the saints. But Daniel chapter 8 shows us that when we come to 1844, when the judgment began, this is also the time that the cleansing of the sanctuary began in heaven. And that is when Christ began to do a work of cleansing the lives of his people here on this earth. And he is working on each one of us here today, working to cleanse our soul temples. And I believe that as we see GYC being raised up, God is using events like this, to bring messages like this, to convict our hearts that we need to have our lives cleansed from all sin. Because God is looking for a group of people who will be a demonstration of the finishing of the mystery of God here on this earth. Satan was able to demonstrate this is what his government would look like after 1,260 years of papal supremacy. God raises up the second advent movement which we have the privilege to be a part of and we are the answer in the great controversy that when Christ has a group of people through whom the mystery of God is finished he will be able to bring the judgment to a close and we will see Jesus come back in the clouds of heaven and I don't know about you but I want to see Jesus come back very soon. 
Amen. And so I appeal to each one of you today, may we allow God to cleanse our hearts and souls from whatever things we may be holding on to in our lives. And what we are going to do tomorrow in our last two sessions, we are going to look at the work that God is doing prophetically from history down to the end of time to prepare his people for the very last days. We're going to go through the history of Daniel 11 down to where we are today and we're going to see just how close we are to, to Jesus coming and what the very next thing will take place in Daniel 11. It's not often talked about and we're going to get into the meat of Daniel 11 and we are going to finish up with what it means for Michael to stand up in Daniel chapter 12. We have a powerful message, a prophetic message that gives us an identity. We are the second advent movement to proclaim the three angels messages through whom God is going to cleanse our lives. That is our mission and God is looking for people like us today. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven we thank you for an understanding of what began in heaven in 1844. We thank you that Jesus is our great high priest making atonement for us in the heavenly sanctuary even now. And Lord, I pray that we would look to Jesus in the sanctuary in heaven for cleansing of our soul temples so that he can purify us and cleanse us so that the mystery of God of Christ living out his life through us will be completely finished so that his character will be reproduced in the lives of the second advent movement and may we be part of that glorious work of the third angel so that we can see Jesus come very soon. Thank you for being with us in our midst. Be with us throughout the remainder of this conference. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.